one of the things that when we were, it's been almost a year ago, uh, that we first were introduced to Birch Ridge Community Church. We were living in Colorado, had never heard of Birch Ridge before, had actually never heard of Soldatna, Alaska before. Uh, I remember Julie having to coach me before we visited uh, last April. She said, it's not Soldanta. I kept getting... <laughs> so I don't know why I'm thinking about that this morning. I don't, it's just a funny thing. It was like Soldatna. Um, I practiced it, and now we get it right. It's good. Uh, now, now that I've said it, I'm going to get it wrong over and over again, but it's, it's okay. Um, but one of the things that we were so drawn to uh, with this church was when we talked to uh, your leaders at that point, when we talked to the people who were connected with, uh, with Birchridge, we just kept hearing stories of ways that Birchridge gives away, right? Ways that Birchridge lives in an open-handed kind of way, a way that, that Birchridge makes it not about itself, right? There's so many things that, um, that churches and, and organizations do when they start to turn inward. And Birchridge has intentionally over the years said, how do we serve the, the community around us? How do we serve the world around us? How do we make this not about us? And here at Birchridge now we're in a new season and we continue to, to move forward into to the, the future that God has in front of us. And we continue to say, how do we make it not about us? How do we make it not about us? And, and this month, this whole focus on share the love, part of what we're doing is just really making sure we make that clear, really saying here are the different ways that, that as a church we've got to hold the line on these things because it matters that we give away. It matters that we're open-handed with, with what God has placed in our hands. In some ways, the, the, the whole of this month with Share the Love and with the series that we're starting, um, it really is about relationships. It's about the relationship that we have with God. It's about the relationship we have with each other. It's about the relationship that we have with the community around us. And what does it mean for, for Birchridge to exist in this place, to, to, be, the, to be open-handed and generous with the commu- for the community and for the people that we, that we walk with? And so this week, we start a series called Relationship Goals. And uh, this is, you know, it's February. And for some of us who need the reminder, Valentine's Day is coming, right? So uh, there, there's that whole thing. But uh, <laughs> a couple of guys, I saw write a note to self. Hey, Siri, remind me, right? <laughs> um, funny, my iPad actually responded to that. It's, <laughs> now I'm reminded, too. This is good. <laughs> um, the, um, but this is not just a, a series about romance, right? This is not a series about uh, how to be a better spouse. It's not a series about how to find a spouse. It's not you know, any of those kinds of things. Um, it's about the, the, the relationships that we have, the way that, uh, the, the, way that the, the orientation that we have in relationship is affected. We are so consistent. I don't know if you have noticed this. Uh, we are so consistent in our relationships. So, and what I mean by that is the relationships that we have with other people tend to be we tend to operate in that way, in the same way that we operate with God. So you take forgiveness. We're going to talk about forgiveness in a few weeks. And, and you, but you take that as an example. And, and, and the way that we forgive others is often the way that we expect God to forgive us, right? And, and that's usually not a good thing. That usually means that when we forgive somebody, we still remember what they did wrong, right? We still hold it against them. We still might bring it up in some future conversation. Well, you remember that time? It's like, well, yeah, but you forgave me for that. Yeah, but I haven't forgotten and then we ask God to forgive us, and we expect that he's going to forgive us in that same kind of way, and, and we miss a, a piece of who God is and the relationship that we, we can have with him. So the, the idea is that relationships matter, right? There's so much about relationships that drive so many things, uh, but, but the, the healthy relationships can be, can be built on a foundation of what God's doing in us uh, as people. We are consistent. The way that we relate to God is shaped by the way we relate to each other and vice versa. 
And so we talk of Christ's love, right? We're talking this week as we, we build the foundation for the next four weeks that we're talking about Christ's love. And, and, and when we think about that, we, we think about uh, maybe some of the passages or verses that we might know around that saying, for God so loved the world that he sent his son that, to, to, to redeem us, right? To make a way for us. But we also, so we have that salvation story of Christ's love or God's love for us. But there's also Jesus turning to his disciples and turning to those people who are gathering around him and saying, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, right? That, that, that with the dawning of the new that came with Jesus showing up on the scene, that it wasn't, wasn't not just a salvation story. It was a salvation story, but it was also a way of living. Or it was also a way of loving. So, so it's, it's this tension that exists between we are, we, this is our salvation story, but it's also a better way that's been made for us. And so the question is, how do, we, how do we lean in and how do we learn? How do we allow our relationships to be marked? Um, primarily by our relationship with God, that that becomes the thing that drives the other relationships that we have. The problem is, the problem is as human beings, we are uh, wired in a particular kind of way. Uh, and often, especially in relationships, we are driven by fear. And you could write, if you're writing notes, you could say we're, we're at our most toxic when we're driven by fear, right? It doesn't matter what relationship we're talking about. If it's driven by fear, we're probably going to behave in toxic kind of ways in every relationship, John in 1 John writes this, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. When we operate relationally in fear, when we operate and allow fear to be the thing that drives us uh, with, within relationships with God, with relationship with each other, relationship with the world around us, when we allow fear to be the thing that, that drives us, we actually, it starts to mess with our sense of identity. It starts to mess with our view of other people. And we start asking questions like, does God even love me, right? Does God love me? Because we look at circumstances or we look at, at just at our own brokenness and we say, how could it be that we hear that, you know, this, this general sense that, that God loves us, right? for God so loved the world, but then we don't translate that or apply that to our own lives. And we miss that when God says that he loved the world, that that, meant, that means that he loves us too. So we ask ourselves questions like, does God love me? Or, or maybe we look and we're talking about this playing out in the world around us. Does, does God love the person in front of me? Or we may not ask the question that exact way, but we might think of it in these kinds of terms because, because if God doesn't love that person, right? If they might be a person who has disqualified themselves in some way that we're, we're imagining this, this is not God saying this, this is us saying this, that if, if we can imagine that God doesn't love that person, then we might be off the hook too. Right? If it's a hard person or a difficult person for us to love, that, that if God doesn't love them, then, then we're off the hook too. We spend our lives, when we're driven by fear, trying to understand what the parameters are because we want to stay be- within those parameters and we want to know who might be outside of those parameters. So we ask questions like, does God love me? Does God love the person in front of me? And if so, how could we know? Right? How can we have the confidence that, that goes with that? And that's all ways that are driven by fear. Fear relationally leads us to, to being guarded, right? That, that that's the outcome of, of operating in a fearful kind of way, that, that we live in a guarded kind of way. We may be familiar with the golden rule. It says this, that, that we treat others as we want to be treated, right? So, so how do we operate relationally? You look, and, and as, you know, Jesus said it, and, and many, many cultures over, the, over history have some, had something very, very similar to this. It says, so do you want to know how you operate relationally? You treat other people like like you want to be treated as you would want to be treated. The problem is when you inject fear, when you inject a, a sense of being guarded into our relationships, then it actually changes the way that we would actually live this out. And so I'm going to propose that we 
understand it in a different kind of way, that, that if you have like the golden rule, which is the right way and the good way, then the guarded rule, right, the way that's driven by fear would be this, that, that we treat others as we expect to be treated. And that's toxic because that means that when we expect to be mistreated, when we expect that, that somebody is, is maybe not operating in our, in our best interest or in, in our interest, that, that then it causes us to, to tense up and, and to, to, to react before they even act. Right? And so we expect that someone is going to hurt us, or we expect that someone's going to act selfishly, or we expect that, that things are not going to go well, and so, so we preemptively act in a way that, that's, that's a guarded kind of way that, that keeps us from getting hurt, that keeps us from being vulnerable, that keeps us from getting wounded. And, and so we operate, and we, we're bristly, and we're, we're, you know, we, we, we protect ourselves because we, we treat others the way we expect to be treated. So the question is, how do we fight that? Right? How do we fight that kind of gravitational pull? Paul, as we're going to look in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul has a way. He says this, that maybe we should get the right relationship first. And that's the relationship that we have with God, the, the relationship that we have with God through Jesus Christ. So Paul says, keep our eyes on Christ. Get that primary relationship right, and then operate relationally from there. Right? So then when we talk about the relationships that we have with other people, that it's primarily that, that, that we're, we're in a healthy and, and good relationship with God. And then from there, then we have relationships with others. But our security and our safety and, and the things that would cause us to, to, be, to operate in fear are, are mitigated in the sense that our relationship is primarily with God first. That that's the foundation on which we operate relationally. So 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. And there's this ongoing conversation that Paul's been having with the church. And, and it's all about the, the, this idea that the church in Corinth is, is starting to feel pretty good about itself. Right? It wants to know that, uh, that there may be a sense of affirmation or a sense of some answers to some hard questions. And, and so they're asking, they're reaching out to Paul, they're having this correspondence with Paul. And Paul doesn't just give them affirmation, doesn't just give them the answers that they're looking for, but he gives them a way to live. And so I imagine as I, as I read in and, and start at the end of chapter 12 and move into chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, you can imagine Paul knowing how the church in Corinth is wired, knowing what they're trying to get out of him. And then with a little twinkle in his eye, says, if you really want to win, right, if you really want to be like the very best church, if you really want to be able to be proud of yourselves and know that you've got it all together and know that, that God is like happy with what you're doing, then, then this is what you do, knowing that the church in Corinth is going to take the bait, right, knowing that there's maybe a little sense of competition or at least a sense of comparison. And Paul is saying, so if you want to know what it looks like, as a matter of fact, in, in uh, chapter 12, the, the second half of Verse 31, as we move into uh, verse thir- or chapter 13, Paul says this, And yet, and yet, I will show you the most excellent way. And for a church who might be interested, or for a people who might be interested in comparison, for a church or a people who are, who are interested in knowing that they've got it all together, that, that this is one of those lean-in moments where it's like, here's the answer. The answer is coming. And so that you can feel the audience lean in, as Paul says, so you want to know what you have to do. You want to know how to win. You want to know how to, to, to be able to like, feel like you would, in comparison with everybody else, be doing a really great job. He says, I will show you the most excellent way. But what he does first is he starts by breaking down those lesser ways. He starts, before he gets to the answer, he, he starts to build the tension, starts to help them understand why it matters. He says in verse 1 of chapter 13, he says this, If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but if I do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. 
if I speak in tongues, for, for some of the people that would have gathered or for the church at, at that moment in history would have seen those kinds of behaviors as, as evidence of spiritual maturity, as evidence of, of God getting a hold of people in a special kind of way. And Paul says, if, if I do those things, this outward sign of, of this transformation that God is doing in me, this outward sign of a seal of approval that God has placed on me, if I, if I do that but I don't have love, then, then I'm just a, a symbol that, that strikes once and then it fa- the, sa- the sound fades. Paul is speaking of a particular kind of love, this agape love, which means not just, it's not a romantic love, it's, it's not you know, anything like that, it's this care for the one that's beloved, right? that I have concern for, a care for, I actually care about you. Paul continues in verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. Right, Paul is listing now all the things that might make somebody a somebody in a Christian community, right? That, that somebody could have a gift of prophecy, that they would have a, a special insight into what God is doing, that, that seems like they have a, a way of understanding even the most mysterious things that God is up to. That if they have faith that, that's made evidence by the moving of mountains, like, as Jesus described, that, that if, even if I have all of those things, or even if I do all of those things, if I'm not driven by love, or if they're not driven by love, that they become meaningless. Fear by the way, as we look at this reality, fear often manifests as comparison or competition within a community, and it's toxic. Paul continues, verse 3, if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, right? But I, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Paul says, even if I posture myself in a way that when everyone looks at me is like, wow, that is so sacrificial, that's, that's, so, that's so good that, that he's doing all those kinds of things, that, that there's just such an evidence of, of Paul being so selfless and so, so, so willing to give of himself. But he says, if I don't do it out of love, right? if I don't have love, then I gain nothing. In other words, the whole system collapses without love. And so as a people, we have to get this right. This is what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth as he's, as he's building his case, as he's, as he's breaking down the lesser ways that, of, of understanding what the most excellent way is. He says, without love, the whole system collapses. We have to get this right. We have to get this right. But the problem is it's so much easier. Well, if you've noticed this about life in general, it's, it's a whole lot easier to get it wrong than to get it right. If we're going to drift in a particular direction, it's not probably towards getting it right. It's so much easier to get it wrong. In our fallen nature, we're wired to get it wrong because we make it about ourselves, right? To, to, to understand that even when I, when I give to the poor or give my body over to hardship, it becomes, as Paul is saying, that he may boast. But if I don't have love, I gain nothing. Without love, the whole system collapses. But now Paul turns and begins to give the picture of the most excellent way. He begins to give them a glimpse of what the bullseye really is. He said, if you're going to live in a certain way, if you're going to, to live in a way that, that, that's consistent with what God's calling you to, then, then this is what that looks like. In this passage uh, that we're about to move into, it's a passage that many of us maybe have heard when we've attended weddings because you talk about what love is. Right, we start to think about what that looks like. And so we look at this passage, and, and often we can hear it in, in terms of, of a wedding ceremony or to understand what, what marriage looks like. But it's so much deeper. I mean, marriage is the manifestation of, of what love is for each other. The way that we operate within our marriages is marked by these kinds of things, but it's a much broader picture of what love actually is. So speaking of the way that Christ operates, the, the, the love that God has for us. And for us then as a people to try and reflect what that looks like, Paul writes this, love is patient, love is kind, does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered, it keeps no record 
of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. By the way, this moment, if we could just pause for a second on this first, that 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 means that sometimes we have to have hard conversations with each other, right? Sometimes because love does not delight in the, in the brokenness of our lives, it's, it's unwilling to let us sit in what would be evil and what would be dark. And so we have conversations, even if our voice shakes, even if our hands shake, even if we're really uncomfortable and it, and it requires what we would call a courageous conversation, we talk, we speak about what God really wants for our lives and we, we rejoice with the truth. That love means hard conversations sometimes. By the way, if you look at this passage and you talk of fear, that fear would be the thing that causes us to do all of the things that it says that love does not do. Right? When it turns into competition, when it turns into comparison, that's when we dishonor each other, or we, we envy each other, or we, we're boastful, or we're proud. Love does not divide, delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. In verse 7, it always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. This is a beautiful statement, right? This this verse is one that that for us is such an inspirational kind of picture, and yet we can't even really imagine what what love like that even looks like, right? So here's the church in Corinth trying to figure out this most excellent way that Paul is painting a picture of, and and for them, they couldn't probably imagine what this would look like either, and that's the issue, right? They want to win. They want to get it right, and yet they can't imagine what the bullseye actually looks like lived out. That Here's a people, and maybe for us, we have to wrestle with the same thing, that is trying to be a Christian community without fully understanding what the bullseye is, relationally speaking. There's these four elements that, that, that love is, that what love does, it, it protects, right? It cares for the other. It always trusts, Right? It, it always hopes, which means that it, it believes that what could be is better than what is. That it always perseveres, right? that it endures even through hardship, even in those difficult times, even through the times when, when it would be easier to walk away or lean out. That love perseveres. But there's this fifth piece to it. It's not just those four, uh, those four statements, protects, trusts, hopes, and perseveres. It's, it's always Right? It's the consistency that comes with that, that, that it always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. It's utterly consistent. Right? The love that comes from God, the love that has been poured out on us from, the God, from God is, is consistent, which is what allows us to be fearless, that, that our circumstances or what people might say or do to us, that, that all those kinds of things pale in comparison to the consistency of, of God's love. Right? Love that comes from God, that it allows us to be fearless even when other people let us down. Because verse 8, love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they'll cease. Right now, Paul is taking these, these statements when we talked about this, the lesser ways or the things that we might build our confidence on. He says, now, this is what it looks like when, when love properly understood is, is the bullseye. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they'll be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. Paul says, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So the question is, the question is, if we are normally, if our normal operation is fear, if our normal operation is, is, is the toxicity that comes with being fearful, how can we get to the point 
in our lives where we can be fearful when it comes to our relationship with God, when it comes to our relationship with each other, when it comes to our relationship with the world around us. And there's three big truths that we're going to walk through this morning as we look at what this looks like lived out. And the first one is this, is, is that we are loved. Right? These are not, by the way, brilliant statements. So if you're looking for like, the, the key to everything that feels like you have to be a rocket scientist to, to grasp it, that's not what this is. This is so simple. Right? It starts with our identity, the way that we understand ourselves in light of what God, of what God has said about us. That it starts by, by getting our relationships in the right order that it starts with us understanding the relationship that we have with God before we start worrying about the relationships that we have with, with other people, saying, what does it look like to get right in this relationship with God? What does it look like for me to properly understand the, the God-first relationship that I have? Psalm 27.1 says this, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Right? When, when, when God is primary, when that relationship becomes the foundation on which our other relationships are built, then, then our confidence and our fearlessness comes with, with having that, re- that relationship properly ordered. It answers the big question of our lives, the who am I, right? There's so much about, our, about who we are that, that, that it's, it's the discovering of ourselves. It's trying to find out what's right for me. It's all those kinds of things that are wrapped up in this who am I question. And for us to realize that that starts or the answer is, is understood with, with we are loved. I am loved. The God of the universe who created all things looked upon me and loved me, loved me so much that he sent his son Jesus to, to live and die for me, that, that God loved us. And then everything else is in response to that. Everything that we do is in response to that. It, it's not about us earning God's love or earning God's affection or earning God's pleasure, but it's about everything that we do is in response to that, not in trying to earn it, to understand that we are loved. Right? That, that even when we get it wrong, that, that when we were a mess, God loved us so much that he sent his son. That means that even when we are a mess, that God continues to love us, that God loved us, and everything else is in response so that not everything we do is trying to get God to love us, which is fear and work-based, that our only assurance when we're operating in that kind of way is that we can somehow manage to do the right thing. But it starts on the foundation of, of God's love, that, that Jesus is the embodiment of God's love, that he reveals through his life, through his death, what it looks like to live it out. In First John, John writes this, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. He says this, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In other words, God loved before we did. Right? That, that it's not on us, that, that the, the relationship begins with God's love for us. But he says, dear friends, since God loved, so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. In other words, when we love, we get a front row seat of watching God work through us to, to reveal himself to those around us. That love is not just received, it's also expressed. So truth number two is that we're, we're called to love, right? That we're loved and we're called to love, which answers, by the way, the, the, the what should I do in response question, right? If we say, who am I? 
and what should I do, right? Some of the big questions of our lives, what's God will, what's, who am I and what's God's will for me? The what should I do question, then our response is that we should love others. Jesus speaking to his disciples in John 13 says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. In other words, if we, if we love in a way that God has wired, or that God has demonstrated to us, that it becomes a billboard for God to reveal himself to the world around us. Paul speaks of Christ-like love, and he says that, that love protects, it, it trusts, which means that we trust God with our relationships too, that, that it's not about us saying, I'm going to hedge my bets and, and, and hold on and, and be careful, but I mean, we, we have to be smart and wise about the relationships we have, but to trust God with our relationships, not just trust people. That if we've had trust broken, that, that maybe what we need to do is turn and say, God, I need to learn to trust you. I'm going to trust you, and then and I'm going to let you love through me, because if you love people around me, and I'm not sure I can, can muster that in me, then I'm just going to do everything I can to learn how to love God well. And then say, God, I'm going to need you to love the world through me. Right, to, to start there, to trust God in that kind of way, that, that love hopes, which means that we, we imagine good things, that, that when we imagine next steps, we imagine what could be is better than what is, that we're constantly imagining how to help each other move forward, that love perseveres, which means that when it gets difficult, when, it, when, it, when things get hard, that we don't give up because love doesn't fail. Love is the most excellent way. This is truth number three, that you are loved. You're called to love, and love is the most excellent way. If our goal, right, if the bullseye of our lives is to be like Jesus, then the reality is the only way to get there is Jesus through his transforming work in us that we'll never be able to love like Paul describes without God transforming us along the way, step by step by step. For us to understand what this might look like, for us to understand in a very real sense what this bullseye actually is, if we're called to love like Christ, then we need to understand what the love of Christ actually looks like. And so we look at verse, verses 4 to 7 in 1 Corinthians 13, and we take where it says love, and we replace, it, we replace that word with Jesus. And it says this, that Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. He does not dishonor others. He's not self-seeking. He's not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. He always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. It's the bullseye. That's Christ's love for us to understand what that looks like, but to take it the next step forward this morning to say, what does it look like for us to live and love like that? For us to understand what the bullseye really is, we talk about these clarifying kind of statements to say, this is what we are called to to imagine a life living towards, lived towards a bullseye, to say, at the end of my life, if nothing else is said of me, then, then that I live this out well, what would that even sound like? For us to imagine the bullseye, for us to actually hear what that bullseye actually looks like, means that we begin to learn in a different kind of way and imagine something different. So we're going to do something that um, might feel a little uncomfortable, but we're going to read that passage again. And what we're going to do, like I did with Jesus' patient, Jesus is kind. We're going to read it together, and we're going to put our own names in there. And this is one of those moments where it allows us to actually imagine with God what this could look like, and then could help us imagine what those, what those growth areas might be for us. In some ways, it's going to be the most encouraging and potentially the most convicting thing that we do this morning. And so we'll get it on the screen where there's blanks 
put your name in or put he or she as it's appropriate for the words. So together we say this, Nate is patient, Nate is kind. He does not envy, he does not boast, he is not proud. He does not dishonor others, he's not self-seeking, he's not easily angered, he keeps no record of wrongs. Nate does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. He always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. It's a tender thing, isn't it? To imagine our lives live towards that bullseye, to imagine that that would be the thing that's said of us, to imagine what Christ's love is for us, and then to imagine what our love and the way that we operate fearlessly in relationships with those around us, what they can actually look like. These are the kinds of things, this way of living can literally change the world because the world doesn't even imagine, can't even imagine love and life lived in this kind of way. To remember that we're loved by God, but then we're also called to a way of living that's defined by that love. May it be so.